Hey, interior designers and design enthusiasts. Welcome to the Daniel House Book Club. Together, we're reading and discussing the eight books every interior designer and design enthusiast should have read, according to Architectural Digest. For a complete reading schedule, please visit our website, danielhouse.club, and click on the Club Bulletin tab. While you're there, consider becoming a member. Daniel House Club is a powerful tool that helps interior designers do more of what they love and less of what they hate. I'm the club's chief creative officer, Peter Spaulding, and I'll be your host. Today we're discussing chapters 10, 11, and 12 of Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman's The Decoration of Houses, which all deal with the design of specific, often pretty fancy rooms, including, but not limited to, the drawing room, boudoir, ballroom, and music room. Most of our clients don't throw balls, invite people over for piano recitals in their music room, or hire and fire servants in their boudoir anymore, as all of Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman's friends and clients did. It would be stupid for us to create rooms for our clients to try to learn to do these activities in. So, as we read through these three chapters that deal with very fancy rooms of specific functions, for which we will have extremely rare occasion to design, I'm thinking we have to do it with an ear to the major themes that might be applied to other types of rooms, and maybe also versions of these rooms that have totally vanished that our clients may actually really like to have. Even though most of them are more apt to drink wine and play video games on the couch, I don't think they actively want to do these things in spaces that look shabby. If the purpose of some of these rooms that we're reading about is obsolete, their ability to perfectly accommodate their purpose is not. I say drink wine and play video games because I once had a project that was about accommodating exactly those things. It was for a couple that lived in a little two-bedroom apartment in a building with a glass curtain wall. Before I met them, their place looked pretty much like a college dorm. One loved to game, and they both collected wine. I think the wine was mostly stored in a mini-fridge in the entry hall when I first came, and they kept the rest of it at another house. Cords for the gaming system were visible everywhere. The thing was, there was only one public space in this place. One 9-foot-high, maybe 15-by-30-foot room held the open kitchen, the dining space, and the living room. The unit was on the corner, so one short and one long wall had floor-to-ceiling glass. The TV was against the long wall, which was not glass, after which came the opening to the hall, then to the only bath. Along this hall were weird niches for mechanicals that somewhat disfigured the room. The kitchen was all contained against the, no the non-glass short wall. There was one thick, round, ugly support column directly opposite the entry, and though this sucked, it did help define a transition from kitchen to living space. They had like a 36 or 40 inch square dining table there, but really wanted to be able to have people over for dinner. Employing the logic Edith and Ogden have when designing library shelving, which we'll go into later, I created a thickness of floor-to-ceiling cabinets all along the TV wall. These were concealed behind big floor-to-ceiling panels with touch latches. As there was no cased opening from TV wall to entry hall, I continued the paneling into the hall. Although the ceiling of the room wasn't the lowest of low, these vertical lines went a long way toward lifting it up, just as Edith and Ogden promised. Confronting that annoying column, which was probably 30 inches from the curtain wall, 
I used it as a support from which to suspend a counter and three shelves in the direction toward the glass, which added space for the kitchen. And opposite these, going into the room, I suspended a 76-inch dining table slab, and their dreams were complete. Edith and Ogden would likely have hated this last bit, but my clients were happy and the needs of their daily life were met, which I think is one of the themes of these chapters on specific rooms. The purpose of each must be successfully served by their design. For those of you just finding us, Danny House Club is the place where the job of interior design is made simple. Our members have access to wholesale pricing from over 75 great trade vendors. You can join as a free Pro or Pro Plus member, depending on the level of discount that fits your needs. And shipping is always 10% of your order. Once you become a member, be sure to check out your dashboard, which allows you to create furniture schemes with your clients and convert those directly into bills upon approval. Visit danielhouse.club today and start spending less time and earning more money. And now, back to Peter. I've just told you about one room I reconfigured to accommodate all kinds of informal living. It was made to look beautiful, or at least tidy, by applying lessons I learned directly from these three chapters. I also brought it up because it's an example of the not uncommon situation where the public and private lives of our clients have to happen in the same space, even though these worlds are a fair bit closer to one another than they were in Edith and Ogden's day, at the very least, people want a place to stuff their private mess before a dinner party. Let's think of an average contemporary house that does have more than one public room. These rooms are probably living room, dining room, family room, and kitchen. There might be an office or library too. In Edith's house in Lenox, Massachusetts, which I got to visit last week, the public rooms I remember are drawing room, library, office, and dining room. So, not actually that different, except the kitchen was definitely kept separate as that was a room for, a room for servants to work in. Of these, the drawing room was the very clear center of the house and treated with the most importance. I think Edith and her guests actually did spend a decent amount of time in there. We don't really have drawing rooms anymore. We have living rooms and family rooms. In the 19th century, critics of domestic design, including Edward Bach, editor of the hugely influential Ladies Home Journal, identified the drawing room as one of the most over-decorated and uninhabited rooms in the house. Though it seems Mr. Bach may not have been the first to rename the drawing room the living room, he is the one identified with causing the seismic shift. He hoped this renaming would encourage people to create drawing rooms comfortable and inviting enough to actually live in. He was really, really successful at this. The Ladies Home Journal was the first magazine in history to be distributed to over one million readers, and the very famous architect Stanford White attributed its editor with the humongous and lightning speed positive change of the whole nation's taste in houses. Having refused to work with Bach early on, White said he would gladly work together pro bono to make up for his initial snub. So why do so many of us have grandparents and even parents? whose living rooms seem more like the uninhabitable drawing rooms of the pre-Bach world. I will give you maybe five seconds to come up with the answer. Five, four, three, two, one. Got it? That's right. The TV. In an episode of my favorite show, 30 Rock, when Tina Fey's character Liz Lemon learns that one of her colleagues doesn't have a TV, her immediate response is, what do you point all of your furniture at? It would be difficult to overstate the impact the TV has had on the way people are inclined to furnish the rooms they live in. It's probably too simple to 
attribute this reversion just to the TV, though. By the mid-20th century, domestic help in the average house was almost totally eliminated. With the owner now acting as cook, cleaner, and mother, the kitchen had to be a command center, and keeping the living room clean for guests while entertaining kids became sort of unreasonable. So a family room with close connection to the kitchen, where mother and kids could be together and make a mess that didn't have to be cleaned up before dinner was obvious. The reason I assign the completion of the return of the living room from the center of family life to a decorative tomb to the TV is that through the 40s and 50s, you can see kitchens where family life took place but where no adjacent family room is present. In these houses, you may find a basement rumpus room or party room, but these were for big rambunctious gatherings and not really for TV viewing. In houses where help continued to be employed, a TV may have been wheeled into the living room on a cart when the owner wanted to watch something, then wheeled away after, but leaving the TV out in the center of the house seemed to be a step too far. So, as the TV became the favored leisure pastime, life at home migrated completely out of the living room until maybe the flat screen TV made it possible to hang less obtrusively on the wall. We've made this living room detour because Edith and Ogden's history of this space obviously doesn't bring us up to present day, so it's a bit confusing to pick up. They carry us through a few centuries of morphing traditions across Europe, and the common thread to note in their account is the homeowner's consistent need for a public and private set of rooms. In England, they say the medieval withdrawing room began as part of the owner's bedroom where the ladies might retreat after the activities of the hall or maybe from the activities of the hall. It grew from there to be its own room. In France, the story was similar, though both the public hall and private bedroom contained beds, one for actual sleeping and one for ceremonial business or for visiting noblemen. And I have seen paintings which they reference of this exact thing. Um, in Italy, the large public salon was eventually divided into two um, two rooms, and I cannot speak Italian at all, so I am sure I will butcher these names, but they have the Salon de Campagne and the Salon de Famille. I think these are my favorite names, and maybe we should t take up the terms company room and family room to say what we really mean. Anyway, as English houses grew, the room for entertaining important people was renamed the Salone after the French or after the Italian Grand Room. And the one for the family life was abbreviated from the medieval ladies' withdrawing room to just drawing room. Finally, Edith and Ogden deliver us to their day in the United States where the average house had the drawing room and the library. The latter was for the man of the house and his guests, and the former was for the whole family to relax. But often, instead of being treated as the, t the Italian salon de famille, the decor of this relaxing room took on the nature of the Salon de Campagne, except the family knew no heads of state. Therefore, they had no use for such a fancy room. The point Edith and Ogden are making in deline delineating all of this for us is that the average house has no place for the fancy living room because there will never be an event important enough for its use. It would be much more enjoyable if it were geared toward everyday family life instead. I think one of the reasons these rooms are so off-putting is inherent in their design is an assumption their owners are more important than perhaps they are. It sort of feels like they are playing house. But all it needs 
to feel like a place to linger and live are comfortable chairs with generous tables and subtle but useful lighting. Did you know you can plan all of your purchasing for a design project right from your Dana House Club dashboard? Once you're logged in, just click Dashboard to get started creating projects. The New Project button allows you to enter details of the project you're beginning, including the percentage of your Danny House Club discount you want to pass along to your client. After you've created a project, use the New Board button to break your project out into rooms. Then, start shopping. When you come to a product you want to add to a room, use the Add to Project button to put that item into a particular client's room. Once you've shopped for everything you want your client to see, Click Share so they can see the items you've selected. When they approve your perfect scheme, you can purchase on your client's behalf or go ahead and click Create Cart to allow your clients to check out directly and we'll mail you a check for your earnings. Your clients are accustomed to purchasing online. Let Daniel House Club do the heavy lifting of procurement and delivery while you enjoy the profits. And now, back to the show. My own living room is my favorite room in my house. It's a nice-sized rectangle, maybe 17 feet wide and 25 feet long, with a fireplace at one end. We can and do do everything in this room. The TV is over the fire, but behind a bamboo roller shade that looks like a painting. The sofa is up against the long wall to the left of the fire, with big tables and lamps at either end. Small armchairs are at right angles, so this seating group forms a rectangle around a generous coffee table. To the right of the fireplace, a writing desk is placed up against the fireplace wall. Into the room a bit, across from the sofa grouping, is another pair of armchairs with a square table between and a big round ottoman that doubles as seating and connects this group to the sofa group if we have company. In the remaining half of the room, opposite the fireplace wall, is a round game table, a very large cabinet filled with games and books, and a stocked bar cart. Actually, there are books stacked everywhere. It is a place as comfortable for one person as for 20, and I think this is one of the most important attributes of a good living room. Edith and Ogden probably wouldn't go for the intense shade of yellow in my living room, as they say this room should be of unobtrusive background, so the individual objects may be observed for their beauty, and so you don't get tired of the loud walls. We agree that patterned wallpaper is weird in the living room. It's just too much to take in. I want to make just a brief pit stop at the boudoir. I've never worked for a client who requested one or probably even had a real grasp of what one is. For some, I think the term feels evocative and definitely decadent. I think, though, that a lot of people have some space in their house that serves this old room's purpose. The boudoir is part of a bedroom suite and has historically been the private sitting room for the lady of the house. Edith and Ogden point out it corresponds with her husband's den. In the colonial vival house I grew up in, my dad worked in the library through a pair of double doors off the living room, while my mom had a tiny sitting room off their bedroom. This sitting room had a delicate mantle that was hardly wide enough to hold a picture, an armchair covered in brown chintz with an ottoman, and a side table with a telephone a wicker cart with a TV, and a built-in bookcase and file drawer. She did all her work here. She'd pay bills, plan events, take calls, wrap presents, iron, and sometimes even nap. I have a client who has a chaise in a sort of private part of the stair landing just outside of her bedroom door where I've seen her do all the same things. Even though this sort of room seems tethered to old gender roles, I think we should try to forget this and focus on how these tiny rooms are great places to quietly do all kinds of stuff alone. 
I don't think they should be taken totally off the map, especially as the world has recently undergone another huge shift back to working from home. Edith and Ogden point out that in a small house where a whole bedroom suite is not possible, sometimes this little room might be connected to the living room or family room. One thing I think should be noted about this sort of room, they aren't replaced by large laundry rooms with a portion of lowered counter that allows for other kinds of work. A room like this is definitely about a task, which a stand-in for a boudoir does not have to be. The stuff that goes on in a boudoir may be a bit more high-minded than just laundry. Edith and Ogden also talk about something called the morning room in this chapter, which is a title I had never heard for the type of room they describe, but which sounds like a great room to have in any kind of house where kids and dogs and mud might occur. I think we have this sort of in the form of a rec room, though the English um, rooms they're talking about seem to do a better job of facilitating all kinds of life. I think to find the chapter on gala rooms at all relevant to our own work, we need to listen to when Edith and Ogden point out our understanding of home here in the States comes from the English middle-class houses, not aristocratic estates. The point of this is that if you are ever tasked with creating a really big house where lots of entertaining will happen, you cannot just enlarge all the rooms common in a regular floor plan for a regular house, because then all sorts of activities begin to mingle awkwardly together. The whole time I was reading this chapter, I was thinking of the scene in The Sound of Music when Maria first comes to the Von Trapp house and peeks into that empty gilded ballroom. It is so desolate, closed, and completely empty of furniture that when the captain comes in to scold her for going where she hasn't been invited, his movements echo. The echo of unuse dominates the scene entirely. Later, when a grand party is on, the room is filled with life. The only change is a sea of people interacting with one another. It's sort of like logs and kindling just waiting for a match to light the flame. The point here is that the best party room is always ready for a party. It doesn't have to have sofas and chairs and tables hauled out of the way and crammed into other rooms to make way for guests. I have definitely helped get ready for big parties where an entire house has had to be turned upside down to create the mood, and while I don't think ballroom design is in my future, I do think there are little tweaks that can be made to a house so a proper party can be thrown without resituating every piece of furniture beforehand. For me, this has a lot to do with how open the kitchen is to the rest of the rooms. I get the open kitchen thing. It's sort of nice for a family. It's fun with eight people leaning around an island sharing a couple of bottles of wine. But to have it totally open absolutely sucks when you throw a caterer in the mix. It's still fun to be served over a huge kitchen island, but there are garbage bins and appliances and dishes everywhere. There's got to be some place for these people to stage. I'm just trying to come up with a modern-day example where things continue to awkwardly mix because of poor house planning. Go ahead and tell me I'm being bougie AF. Then, you try throwing a shower for your best friend and watching your dog eat all the appetizers. Wouldn't it have been nicer for that to have happened behind closed doors? The ballroom had to stand alone, not be a part of the everyday function of a house if it was really going to serve its function completely. The kitchen is a social center, and with our obsession for preparing and serving food together, may even qualify as a contemporary gala room.
If it is going to continue to become more and more enormous, I think we as designers should start thinking more holistically about the full range of activities it has to serve and stop making it so totally connected to everything all the time. Maybe instead of it being a small semi-detached room as I like, or a functional room openly connected to another, it should be its very own magnificent room. Maybe that's how the clients want it. Could be that I've gotten carried away, but I think the Europeans, always more comfortable with kitchens that have movable furniture instead of exclusively built-ins like we expect, are getting this and doing some really captivating kitchens. A great ballroom, according to our authors, has very high ceilings and strong architecture and chandeliers and the Italians, always understanding house decoration as interior architecture, make them the best. They get the scale of these rooms and treat them with coarse, robust lines that give the necessary first impression. I think of this a little like the importance of street signs being legible from a distance at great speed. These rooms are for seas of people and activity and small details will not be seen or appreciated. Like the kitchen, they are lit from overhead, only in this case... It's to create the glittering look required to set the mood for a good party and not so we don't go blind as we wash our dishes. Weirdly, a music room strikes me as maybe even further from the realm of our life today. Recording studio, sure. A room for a piano recital, no. But I think Edith and Ogden do offer one very interesting tidbit to chew on about the music room, which is that a flat ceiling is never good here, as it should always appear like there is room for the notes to escape overhead, and vaults and domes help secure this effect better. This got me thinking about what other visual cues we believe that actually serve little purpose at all. I think it's possible that a vault could help with acoustics in a music room, but that's not why they are saying we should use it. One contemporary subject this always brings me to is green design. Particularly when LEED certification first became prominent, there was a look that suggested something was sustainable. Something could look sustainable and not be sustainable at all. It's been a while since I've brushed up on LEED rules, but many historic buildings are pretty green, as they were built before mechanical systems existed to make us comfortable, and before trucking and shipping things all over the globe was even possible. Yet they don't look the way people expect a green building to look, so they're not praised. I'm curious if you can think of other examples of this sort of thing. The saloon and the gallery are the other important rooms mentioned in this chapter. While you might think the saloon is only found in Wild Wild West movies, it's actually a huge double-height room that often has high windows or what's called a Claire story, and an upper-level gallery accessible by concealed stairs, allowing a view down to the major space below. These were common in Italy and used for dancing and gaming. And some version of this space is not totally uncommon today, though more to facilitate circulation than game and dance. The most famous domestic example I can think of is the Great Hall at the Breakers, the Newport, Rhode Island home of the Vanderbilt family. Even though its interiors are done by our very own Ogden Codman, this is one of my least favorite important houses of the Gilded Age. Parentheses, the Elms down the street is spectacular and everyone should go. Truly, I've furnished my whole house with items I bought from Club. I have the Godot sofa from Menu, I have an Enlo bookshelf from Forehands, I have the Roberta Ottoman from Nouveau Living, I have several lights from Mitzi and Hudson Valley, and I could continue. The place feels very one-of-a-kind, 
even Peter, our chief creative officer, and the most unforgiving critic, thinks so, which is saying something. He's even thinking of featuring it in our upcoming issue of the Club Bulletin. So shop Daniel House Club for all your project needs and see how unique your spaces feel. Anyway, The Breakers has all the elements we've been talking about, but they are overdone at every turn. With the number of guests it probably received each summer, this may not have been the wrong feeling, though. So my opinion aside, the center of The Breakers is a multi-story room with balconies ringing the whole thing and offering views from the upper-level halls that connect all its rooms. It would be pretty if it didn't seem so absurdly overblown, and if it felt like any dancing or whatever could take place in this big hole in the middle of the house. The saloon notion also crops up in all sorts of houses built in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where big rooms for entertaining are visible from upper-level catwalks connecting all the bedrooms. Sometimes these houses have really bizarre spaces, but because of their more intimate scale, they actually seem to better recapture the delight of the original saloon. One family member might stand upstairs and chat to one below, or a party can be escaped and observed from a distance. The romance you sense on an Italian evening looking out from a balcony loggia into a swarm of people below is more present in these weird houses than in the overwrought hall at the Breakers. Edith and Ogden make three very interesting points in their chapter on the library, smoking room, and den that can be applied to all sorts of rooms. One is on the subject of pochet, which I'll describe in a minute. The next is the frequent assumption that in order to be practical, things need to be ugly. And the last is great insight on making use of small rooms that seem to have nothing going for them. Pochet may be one of the most underrated architectural concepts in the contemporary house. It is easily defined as the thick black part of floor plans indicating wall thickness. But unlike now, when more space is always the driver and walls can be thinly constructed to this end with mechanicals wrapped in sheetrock jutting off the walls and ceilings irregularly, Pochet was once used artistically to conceal or build up all kinds of stuff. Edith and Ogden get at this when they talk about the best sort of bookcases for a library. Those are shelves built into the thickness of the wall. Building shelves into the wall and carrying their thickness from floor to ceiling ensures that the books are allowed to create the decoration of a room. It also allows a nice deep passageway from the adjoining room. Deep passageways are probably the easiest way to give a house a feeling of solidity and quiet luxury. Not only do they imply quality construction, but they become great interstitial spaces of their own. Like the vestibule transitions a house from the exterior to the interior, a deep passage transitions you from one room to the next. You can hide any number of things in wall thicknesses. Concealed cabinets, a stairwell, a whole pantry perhaps. I use this concept of wall thickness in almost all my projects, no matter their style, and it is always the element of the design that is hardest to get a client to understand. It is so totally foreign to them, and they are terrified it will make their spaces feel smaller. It never does. It only makes them smarter. Once, I was working on a family room in a daylight basement. Everyone kept saying it would always feel like a basement. There was a heating duct hanging like a foot off the ceiling, running the full length of the room. I buried it in a bookcase wall with a central fireplace and a pair of double doors opening through the bookcase from the stair. It became one of the favorite rooms of the house, and no one was the wiser. 
You can even specify something called a Harman hinge, which will allow a door to open and become completely flush with the wall of a thick passageway. I can't think of anything cooler. Edith and Ogden have a lot more to say about libraries, and I'd encourage you to read this section, but Pochet is the piece that stood out the most to me. Smoking is no fun, and our authors indicate the den pretty much took the place of an overt smoking room by the time they were writing. The den was the one room in the house the Victorian decorator didn't get carried away with, and Edith and Ogden mention that so many were occupied with the practical roll-top desk. I have never liked these things, and they didn't either, but they were pretty functional for hiding a mess. The point they're getting at here is that when a designer gets too carried away with effects and forgets comfort, then the assumption becomes not only that what is considered beautiful is not practical, but also what is practical must be ugly. I confront this all the time, and I'm guessing you do too. I get it especially from someone who, trying to maximize storage, wants to put a cabinet in a place that makes no sense at all. It's like I'm taking away their ability to live a happy life, and maybe some of their civil liberties, in saying it can't go there. There is always a beautiful solution to a practical problem, but it can be very difficult to navigate with a client. And I've found the most successful way is to make them believe they came up with the idea themselves. Finally, Edith and Ogden talk about a room which might serve a den or library-like purpose in a small house. They're talking about a New York townhouse, which often does have a little room opening right off the entry and almost always another opening adjoining the larger room beyond. But I've seen this obligatory room in all kinds of houses all over the country, and they can be very tough to deal with. The first tip they give is to close up one of the passageways, which I agree with wholeheartedly. The purpose of this room is never going to be super social, so why does it need more connection? Getting rid of this opening will allow a room that's even just 10 by 12 or 8 by 14 feet to handle a lot more than you might think. A fireplace with a couple of armchairs and bookcases on either side, a little sofa against the wall, and a desk. To convey height, you can panel the walls so vertical lines will provide the eye to, with something to move along. I find that families who like each other pack themselves into these little spaces more often than they spend time in a bigger room. Our authors do mention the problem of an angled fireplace in this kind of room, and I have one of these in my house, and while it does look quaint, as they say, it is impossible to get chairs next to and make it look really nice. I think this just speaks to employing logic in design. The angled fireplace eats a lot of floor space and is actually pretty hard to enjoy. That sums up our discussion on these chapters dedicated to specific formal rooms. If you're designing a ballroom, I can't wait to hear about it. If not, join us next week as we look at what the decoration of houses has to say about dining rooms and bedrooms. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Daniel House Book Club, again, please visit danielhouse.club and click on the Club Bulletin tab for a complete schedule of this season's readings. While you're there, consider becoming a club member. Our interior designer members enjoy the best trade discount in the industry, as well as great tools that make communicating and purchasing with their clients hassle-free. See you around the club. 